My name is Ed, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're visiting with us, welcome. Thank you so much for coming. We believe the Gateway is a safe place, and it's also a home, and we want it to be a home for you. We don't think Sunday morning is uh, just a time um, to gather and sing songs, but we believe this is a time when we can actually experience God's presence. Our theme of conversations over the last month has been the birth of a Savior and the Savior of the world. A reading from Isaiah chapter 1. And then reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprout, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout out before all the nations. This is the third Sunday of Advent. And Advent is a season when we celebrate the Savior of the world. And to celebrate today, we light three candles, one for each Advent Sunday. And this is a reading from 1 John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father 
and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that you, that our joy may be complete. Okay, so what does Christmas mean? I mean, this is one of the things that we do at the Christmas season when we gather here around the world, right? All over the world. People who follow Christ gather together during the Christmas season, and we remind ourselves, we rehearse what Christmas means. Here's what's interesting. John was one of the followers of Jesus. At one point, it's intimated that he might have been Jesus' best friend. John wrote one of the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John doesn't include a birth narrative, either in his biography or later he wrote three letters to a church, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He doesn't include the birth story, a birth narrative in any of his accounts, but John may do more than any of the other authors, maybe more than any of the other biographies, to tell us the significance and the meaning of the Jesus story. John is more lyrical than some of the other New Testament authors, and uh, he uses these kind of epic images and epic phrases to tell us what Jesus means. And we're going to hunker down on that today. We're going to actually look at the introduction to 1 John. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to read with us the passage that Tim read earlier, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And what we're going to see here are six critically important truths about the Jesus story. Six critically important truths about the Jesus story, and I want you to know, truth, we're going to use that word without apology. You might disagree. Let's speak for a minute. I'm going to acknowledge those of us who are here this morning and are a little bit skeptical. These things might not even be true. I think they are, but we're going to use that word without apology because this is one of the significant features of the Jesus story. It presents itself as actual fact, as actual history. This is not a myth. This is not just a story. It presents itself as actual historical happenings. So let's look at six critically important truths, critically important facts, and what they suggest about Jesus. Now don't get nervous about six. We're going to spend a while on the first one, but after that they'll go pretty quickly. All right, number one. First critically important truth about Jesus is Jesus predated Christmas Eve. And when we say Christmas Eve, we mean the original. Jesus predated Christmas Eve. Literally, John says, that which was from the beginning. And when he says the beginning, he doesn't mean when time and space were launched into existence. He means before that, he means the beginning. In fact, John starts off his biography of Jesus with a a fuller version of this same idea. Listen to what he says in the gospel of the the biography of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Pause for dramatic effect. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All right, so let's dig in here a minute. The word word in this passage translates the Greek word logos. This is interesting because logos was a fairly common word in Greek philosophy of the day, but it's used in a very distinctive way in Scripture. When John uses this term, he means that Jesus followed this. He's using a really cool analogy He's using this term to mean that Jesus stands in relationship to the Father the same way that a word stands in relationship to the speaker. Right? Now, Diane and I have three children. I started to say boys, but they're men now. And the very first action that all of my children took was to cry. They used their voice. Before they walked, before they ate, 
They used their voice. Their voice was coterminous to their existence. Love that big word. From the beginning of God's existence, his voice was part of him. His voice emanated from him. Now, philosophers and orators of the day equated logos usually with wisdom in a kind of generic sense. And they often personified it. They made it seem like it was a a human thing, something like, you know, logos is a necessary friend if you want to live a good life. Or logos can be your guide if you enter into a time of disciplined study with me. Well, the Bible stole this term and used it in a somewhat similar way, except instead of personification, the Bible uses it to literally refer to a literal person. The Bible identifies the Logos with Jesus. He was with the Father from the beginning, as I said, the way the Father's speech was with the Father. You get where this is going, don't you? Look at John 17, 5. We're going to make this same point. On the last night of Jesus' life, he prays a prayer, and one of the disciples, or maybe more than one, captured this. So this is what Jesus said as a part of that prayer. And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus here is acknowledging the same thing, his own pre-existence. Now, there are those who have heard this part of Jesus' prayer and have seen this as proof of, you know, the pre-existence of all souls. But that's not at all what Jesus meant, and it's not how the first Christians understood it. Far from it. The actual point to Jesus here is, and the first Christians understood it as his utter uniqueness and his, another big word, eternality. In other words, this idea assumes the Trinity. The preexistence of Jesus doesn't make much sense unless Jesus the man is also part of the Godhead. This is how the first Christians organized the virgin birth in their minds. Let me give a little aside here. Please understand that the confusion about the Trinity and the nature of Jesus and how part of the Godhead and being a human being, how that matched up and and what all that stuff means, please understand that's not a modern problem. Admirers of Jesus have struggled with that from the very beginning. Some of you have heard me say before, my favorite New Testament story is the story of Jesus calming the sea. And it's in three of the different accounts of Jesus, three of the different biographies. The disciples with Jesus are out on the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is known for very violent storms. And in uh, in ancient times, they had no idea when those storms were coming. And it was not unusual for sailors to be caught in one of those storms and lose their lives. And sailors knew this well, and most of the disciples were sailors. Jesus was not, by the way. So they were out in this boat, and a storm comes up. And the wind's tossing back and forth. And the Bible says, and this is important, the Bible says they were afraid. Of course they would be, because they're fishermen, they know what this means. So after a while, they see Jesus still asleep, they go wake him up, Jesus, how are you going to help us? We're going to die. And the Bible says Jesus goes up to the front of the boat, and he says, quiet! And the storm gets completely still. And this is fascinating. One of the disciples looked at another one and said, what kind of man is this? And it says, And they called the language and looked for an even more powerful word for fear. They say they were terrified. Look, they saw him perform miracles. They've got a category for miracles. They'd seen miracles. They saw him teach, and all people around him said, wow, we never heard anybody teach like that. But they have a category for teacher, but they don't have a category for somebody who commands storms. They had no idea what to do with that. And they were utterly confused. But understanding the preexistence of Jesus 
ultimately gave these first Christians something of a roadmap toward understanding this. They began to see that his birth was more than just amazing. It was perhaps, hold on, essential. Maybe even in some weird way physically essential. For the pre-existent Son of God to become the Son of a woman, something like a virgin birth had to happen. And in Jesus' case, God somehow, don't ask me to explain, through the agency of his spirit, joined himself with the Virgin Mary. What are you talking about, Ed? (laughs) Well, here's what I'm talking about. John says, that which was from the beginning. And in the first sentence, he's tipped his hand toward the doctrine that we would call the Trinity. Jesus was pre-existent. And wrapped up in that idea is the clear idea that he was part of the Godhead. This is an essential theme in the Jesus story. By the way, if you're confused by the Trinity, welcome to the club. This is not something we can get our heads around, but I want to offer the best illustration of this I've ever heard. It it comes from an author named C.S. Lewis. Some of you have read some of C.S. Lewis's work. And he asks us to imagine some geometrical figures drawn on a piece of paper. He asks us to imagine a line. And then he says, I want you to imagine drawing a square. And he says, what happens in that is that you have taken the figure that you used and you've used it again, but you've just used it in a more complicated way. And then he says, I want you to imagine a cube. Again, you've taken the same basic design, but you've used it in yet an even more complicated way. Then he explains, follow this. In other words, as you advance to more real and more complicated levels, you do not leave behind you the things you found on the simpler levels. You still have them, but combined in new ways, in ways you could not imagine if you knew only the simpler levels. Now, the Christian account of God involves just the same principle. The human level is a simple, rather empty level. On the human level, one person is one being, just as in two dimensions, say on a flat piece of paper, one square is one figure, and any two squares are two separate figures. On the divine level, You still find personalities, but up there you find them combined in ways which we, who do not live on that level, cannot imagine. In God's dimension, so to speak, you find a being who is three persons while remaining one being, just as a cube is six squares while remaining one cube. That cleared it completely up for you. Second key truth that falls out of this teaching It was witnessed. It was witnessed. The second thing to notice about Jesus' story is that it was witnessed, the incredible circumstances surrounding his birth, the amazing teaching, the miracles, the horrific death, the death he predicted repeatedly, and the resurrection. It was witnessed. All right, I want you to do an exercise with me. Let's stand together, and we're going to read the Apostles' Creed. This was not written by the Apostles. It was written centuries later. This was part of the church's work of trying to figure out how to kind of get this in our minds and, and organize this. And I want you to see, there's just, we're doing this exercise for one really key, important point. A few of you have heard me say this before. Don't miss this any time we read the Apostles' Creed. I want you to see this. So we're going to start from the top. We're going to read the Apostles' Creed. Let's read this together. And this is our declaration of faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day, he rose again from the dead. 
He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Stay standing for a minute. Okay, this all makes sense, mostly so, right? God, creator of heaven and earth, yes, we declare that. Jesus Christ is only son, yes, our Lord, you know it. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, but weird, but yes, we believe it, we proclaim it. Born of the Virgin Mary, got to say something, because that's epic. This is the Godhead uniting itself to human beings. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. How did Pontius Pilate get a mention? Think of all the stories in Jesus' life. Think of all the characters in Jesus' life. And Pontius Pilate gets a mention. Why? Because this is these Christians saying, it happened in real history. This is not a story. It happened. And we're rooting it in time, in an actual event. It's mind-blowing. But it's real. That's what they're declaring. And we are declaring I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. You may be seated. Bob Yarber is a a New Testament and a Greek scholar. And he comments on this verse in 1 John. Listen to this. He says, the variety of terms used here correspond to the variety of witness attestation in ancient jurisprudence. I know most of you followed that completely, but in other words, John speaks as if he's in a legal proceeding here. So when John says, heard it, seen it with our eyes, looked upon it, touched it with our hands, he's not making conversation. He is swearing a deposition. In effect, he's saying, look, I know that sometimes you struggle with this, and your younger brothers and sisters who are going to live 2,000 years from now, they're really going to struggle. Well, I saw it. I swear. In fact, John uses the word no and its derivatives, no and its derivatives, 32 times in this one letter. It's five chapters. I want you to know these truths, John is saying. Jesus was witnessed. Third, Jesus is life. Specifically, he is eternal life. Right after college, I went to college in 1814, and right after college, I lived with a guy named Al, and he bought an old home near downtown Winston-Salem in a neighborhood that had been, when it was originally built, I, I don't know, I, seriously, I would guess in the, maybe the 30s or 40s, it had been a, you know, a middle-income neighborhood, and it had degenerated over time, and it was gentrifying. So Al went in there and found a, a place that was a, a mess and bought it. And Al was pretty good at m- fixing things. His dad was great. So we did a lot of work on the house. And to live there, Al asked me to do some work a couple of times. And then after that, he said, you don't need to bother. So we did a lot of repairs on various parts. you think I'm kidding? We did a lot of repairs on various parts of the house. But one of the things was it was really drafty. So he replaced some of the windows, but uh, there were two front rooms, a den and another room. I don't know. He used it as a something. And then there was a, a dining room, across from that a bedroom, and then a back bedroom and kitchen. Well, the back part of the house was freezing. I mean, not even fun. The bedroom, that was okay. Al slept in that back bedroom. He, he liked it cold. But the kitchen, freezing cold. It was hard to even cook in there. To warm up the house, Al bought a wood stove. 
and put it in the front room. And man, that thing was awesome. That front room was toasty. I mean, you'd go freezing cold outside and we'd be sitting in our underwear after about 15 minutes in there. It was hot. Don't try to imagine that. But what we needed to figure out was, or what he, we, what he needed to figure out was how to get the heat from the front room to the kitchen because it just wouldn't go. So he and his dad, I can't explain it. I don't know exactly what they did. I'm going to embarrass myself if I try to explain it too much. But they used, you know, HVAC tubing and somehow they went under the house and connected into a grate that was already in the kitchen. And they used a little fan and they drew heat from the wood stove through this vent underneath and it came up through the grate in the kitchen. And man, it worked like a charm. The kitchen warmed up and that grate was, all, it was one of my favorite places in the house. In fact, it wasn't unusual early in the morning for Al to wake up and come out of his bedroom and find me sitting on top of the grate because it felt great. The grate felt great on your, you know, tushy in a, on a winter morning. Here's the thing. The grate in the kitchen was hot. The wood stove was heat. So we have life. Jesus is life. He's the source. That's what John's saying. He doesn't just mean to be poetic. When John Calvin commented on this verse, he said this. John, the Apostle John, afterwards adds that life was manifested only when, having taken our flesh, the Son of God gave himself for our eyes to see and our hands to touch. In other words, what we saw before Jesus... That was the grate in the kitchen. But when Jesus appeared, we saw the wood stove. I was talking with someone recently about a particular sin pattern in their life. They offered an incredible piece of self-understanding and wisdom. They said that one of the things they've realized about this sin pattern is it makes them feel alive for a while. But then it sucks life from them mostly because of guilt, shame. So they have to chase it again. This is what leads to addictions. Let's be honest. Sometimes it's hard to feel connected to Jesus. But when we do feel connected, what we experience is life. The real article. It's the fire. It's the drink for our thirsty soul, and there's no aftertaste. And those of us who have experienced a real connection to Jesus... We know this. Jesus is life. And Christmas reminds us of that. Okay, next. When we accept the Jesus story, we can have fellowship with others. We can have fellowship with others. John says, we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. As my good friend Jan Zachariah says, it's all about relationships. What we most need is bound up in relationships, our happiness, our sense of belonging, our sense of purpose. All of our deepest needs are bound up in our relationships. I ran into this survey a number of years ago. I used to use it regularly when I talked. It was a survey of the various generations at the time, and I want you to know, those of you who were millennial, sorry, you were a little at this time. We left you out. Primarily, it was a survey of builders and that was the World War II generation, and then boomers, that was my generation, and then busters, we didn't care much about you guys, but that was the generation behind the boomers. It was kind of asking for values statements. So, you know, list the 10 things that are most important to you. And there were these three different lists, and they were radically different. 
That was the wild thing about the survey. Radically different. There was only one thing that was on all three surveys of what's most valuable to us, and in the same position, it was number one. Number one on all three lists was community. We need it, and we know it. The word for fellowship in this passage is the Greek word koinonia. It means association or partnership or fellowship or community. This isn't referring to church lunches. And by the way, on the 30th, we're having a church brunch here. We're having food, and we need you to sign up. So sign up at the table in the back. We are seriously eating. We're not going to have a regular church service. We're going to sit around and eat with one another, and it's going to be a lot of fun. But that's not what the Bible means when it talks about fellowship. It doesn't mean a great game night with friends, although that can be very fun. What the Bible means by fellowship is deep, purposeful connections with others. This is a part of my testimony, my own testimony. The first time I really got a connection with Christ, I don't know that it fully took for me, but it was the first time that there was an opening for me. I was in high school. And you should know his background. My father died when I was 10. My mother, the next year, moved us to a new town. So I went to a different junior high, we called it at the time. Now it's middle school. Uh, junior high and uh, high school in a, a new city. So I had a collection of friends that I was close to and hung out with all the time. My mom had us involved in this big church in town in South Carolina. And the youth group of this church was going to take a mission trip. We were going to do vacation Bible school and for churches in the Appalachian parts of poor parts of Kentucky. So my mom wanted me to go on this mission trip, and there were some cute girls going, so I said, sure, I'll go. So went on this mission trip, and we were broken up into little work groups, and I was assigned to another guy named Leslie, and Leslie and I were supposed to do vacation Bible school, teach a group of fourth and fifth grade boys, and this group of fourth and fifth grade boys were not interested, but we tried. Thursday of our vacation Bible school, still remember, was called Salvation Day only at a Bible Belt Baptist church. So we do our little vacation Bible school, and it's Thursday, and it's supposed to be Salvation Day, and somebody needs to stand up and explain to these boys and girls what it means to be a Christian and how you do it. Well, I didn't want to do that because I had no idea. So Leslie said, I'll do that. So Leslie stands up, and the strangest thing happens. I don't know if you've been in a setting where this has happened, but this is a bunch of little fourth and grade and fifth grade boys and Leslie and I, two high school kids that have no idea what we're talking about, and the Holy Spirit showed up. And Leslie started explaining to them, you know, being a Christian is just turning your life over to God. And you can do that because of what Jesus Christ has done. And here's how you do it. You just recognize that you're not exactly where you want to be, and you know you're not where you're supposed to be, and you just say, God, my best effort has gotten me to a place that I don't really want to be, and I need help. Can you come help me? And as Leslie was explaining this to a room full of fourth and fifth grade boys. He was explaining it to me too. And something started stirring in my life. What happened next was a shift in worldview for me. So we get back home to my hometown and all my buddies call me up. Hey, John's dad just opened up a putt-putt, you know, downtown. A whole bunch of us are going to get, a bunch of girls are coming too. You want to come? Well, fill in the blank. The right answer to that is yes. But for some reason I say no. Because my appetites are beginning to change. Leslie called me up sometime after that. You want to go out and grab something to eat? Sure. Leslie comes and picks me up. We get in the car. Here's the worldview changer. Driving. And Leslie says to me, you know, I've been to your house a few times. I've never seen your dad. 
you know, your mom and dad still together or what's the story? And I realized I had this whole set of friends that I ate and drank and slept with. And what we talked about was girls and sports all the time. I'd known Leslie for about a minute and a half, and he asked me the most profound question that anyone had ever asked. It opened my heart. And what I said inside, I didn't recognize that I said it, but what I said deep inside is, oh my goodness, I want that. We need to hear this, that when we accept the Jesus story, we can have fellowship with others. We need to hear this in two ways. First of all, we need to hear this as a wonderful offer, as a gift, as a promise. This is part of what Christmas means and part of why Jesus came. He opened up real, life-giving connections with others. He made that possible. Secondly, we, suburban Americans, we need to hear this as a challenge. This is part of what Christmas means, and it's part of why Jesus came. He opened up real, life-giving connections with others, and if we are not investing in those connections, then we're missing the point of Christmas and of everything. When we accept the Jesus story, we can have fellowship with others. Fifth, crazy, incredible, life-changing truth. When we accept the Jesus story, we can have fellowship with God. I'm going to read 1 John 1, 1 through 3 again. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us. That which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. God doesn't want to be a concept that you believe. God doesn't want to be a, just a concept that you believe. God doesn't even want to be this epic force that you're overwhelmed by. God wants to have a relationship with us. I want to tee up this cute little video that reminds us of this. Watch this, just a commercial break. special day and your birthday comes only once a year well yeah you're right since you're here why don't you sit down and talk we'll catch up no 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 this is about you and this year for your birthday we knew exactly what you wanted really yeah when you see them we all got you gifts well the gifts are really unnecessary I mean I, I just want to sit down and chat here open mine first oh okay all right Oh, uh, <laughs> clever. Uh, yeah? W-W-I-D. <laughs> and I'm the only one that can wear right? it. Right? <laughs> Do you love it or what? Yeah. I thought, if Jesus would want anything, this would be it. It's great, Drew. <laughs> Listen, I know you were looking for work. Yeah, Jesus, you know what? We're all looking for work. Here, open mine. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's a Bible. Oh, Bible. And it's got your name on it, and your words are in red, just in case you forgot what you said. <laughs> Always nice. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> How did it go when you went over to talk to your Oh, Jesus. I, Here, open uh, my gift. Okay. Yeah, you're going to love it. All right. Yeah. 
Huh? Okay, and what is this? Sand from the Holy Land. I, I special ordered oh. it just for you so that you would feel more at home, you know? I do. Anyway, and that's not all. <laughs> Check this out. Huh? Cross. Yes, a cross, exactly. But not just any cross. This cross was made from the same wood that your cross was made from. Can you uh. believe it? And you can <laughs> wear it as a necklace, you know, to remind you of that day. Yeah, I don't think that's a problem. <laughs> all this is unnecessary, guys, because all I really want to do is talk. Jesus, what is your problem? I mean, if you don't like our gifts, just say so. Yeah, we went through a lot of trouble to get you these. This Bible was not cheap, and the engraving was real gold. You're going to act like that. You can forget about seeing us at Easter. You know, you can at least be grateful for the stuff that you wanted. But all I really wanted was you. When we accept the Jesus story, we can have fellowship with God. Let's let the Christmas story remind us of something. The purpose of the exercise is not Bible knowledge. The purpose of the exercise is not more information of any kind. The purpose of the exercise is not more religion. The purpose of the exercise is to have fellowship with God. Last, if it's real, it produces joy. All of this produces joy. John says, I write this so our joy will be complete. How does Christmas make you feel? Busy? Frenetic? Alone? Sad? Sentimental? These are all very real emotions surrounding the holidays. God's design is that it would produce joy. I'm going to end by reading Luke 2, 8 through 14. Let's hear this again and hear it for the first time. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so, so much. That because of you and what you have done, because of the great price you've paid for us, we can have joy. And I pray that you would be at work in our hearts. Let these words that we've heard this morning sink in and take root. And we pray that this Christmas, this year, would be different from any Christmas before. May we have a clearer picture of you and your love for us than we ever have. And I pray that as we receive our offering this morning, you would bless our resources and help us to um, invest wisely in the work of your kingdom, not just in our church, but in the community around us and in the world around us. And I pray that you would 
Just help us to be good stewards of the opportunities you place before us this week to show others your love. Pray this in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you.